Paddock Pass Podcast 2020 coming at you live from Aragon with uh, your host, Neil Morrison. Hello. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Aragon GP, the fifth race in what, six weekends that we've had in this pretty exhaustive schedule that brings 2020 to a close. I'm not alone for this week's edition because I have the ever-dependable Mr. David Emmett with me. Hello, David. How are you? I am not too bad and just as confused as you about what week it is, what day it is and how many races we've had and how many races we've got to go. And I'm delighted to say that I'm not just in your company. I'm in the company of a new guest on the show, Mr. Cormac Ryan Meenan, uh, otherwise known as Cormac GP. Hello, sir. Welcome to the Paddockcast podcast. Hello. Thank you. My first podcast ever of any description. Well, I feel um, well, quite proud to have you on. Uh, it's a great uh, experience to have you here. Uh, if you uh, if you don't know Cormac's work, I suggest that you really should do. Uh, one of the leading photographers in MotoGP and uh, check out some of his pics on Instagram or on Twitter. Also, a fine brain to have to pick on all matters MotoGP. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, David... How are things with you? How was uh, the Aragon GP for you, apart from the sleep deprivation and the uh, the questioning of your life choices? <laughs> well, apart from sleep deprivation, it was um, it was quite good. It was a, it was a, at least it was a good race. It was just sort of also extremely confusing as to know when we were supposed to be going out because or when we were supposed to be watching TV because um, uh, they kept moving the schedule around because of the weather conditions there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're, well, you were watching back home in the Netherlands. I was at Aragon, but was uh, obviously cooped up in the media centre, not really allowed to leave there. But Cormac, you, uh, well, you have the, the ability to be out there and uh, out around track taking photos. And uh, well, were those the coldest conditions we had all year? Definitely all year, maybe even ever that I've experienced in MotoGP. I, I decided to wear shorts on Friday. Questionable. <laughs> I got probably halfway through the first session and i thought this is a really bad idea i had a lot of jackets on a hat a helmet because we've got to wear a helmet on the scooters um but it's very cold it was very cold indeed yeah i saw a photograph i think posted by moto 2 rider marcus ramirez on one of the mornings just a, a layer of frost on top of his car whenever he was leaving for the track we don't really experience this in, in moto gb because of course in october we're normally in where japan yeah japan this weekend yeah where it would have been japan this weekend yeah Exactly. Uh, but instead, you have to share an apartment with me in Aragon. The joys. I'm living the dream. 2020 just continues to give. Um, so, Dave, I mean, the uh, the temperatures, they, they kind of played a, a bit of a, a role in, in how the race panned out, right? Because, uh, I mean, Friday was really cold. Um, we only really got conditions similar to what we had on Sunday, on Saturday afternoon. And I think Andrea De Vizioso said work for the race more or less started on Saturday. So uh, most of the guys had pretty limited setup experience. And then uh, the hot temperatures that we had on Sunday afternoon, it caught a few people out. Yeah, they really did. I mean, the cold temperatures we had on Friday caught people out as well, because there was a bunch of crashes in the morning, um, uh, even though they delayed practice. Um, and then they delayed practice even further on uh, on Saturday, just because, especially on Friday, there was the, there was a cold wind as well, and that um, was sort of sucking the heat out of tyres. And there's a there's a long stretch between what turn fifteen and uh, turn um, uh, turn two. Well, yeah, turn fourteen uh, and, and turn two, where 
those are the two right-handers. Um, and the bike is a lot of the time on the left, either on the left side or upright. And with the cold wind, it was just sucking all the heat out. And so it was catching an awful lot of people. Out. Uh, there was a, a lot of crashes at turn 14, a lot of crashes at turn two. Um, it was extremely dangerous. And like you say, I mean, like the, the, there was 20 something degrees uh, difference in track temperature between uh, Friday and Saturday mornings and um, Sunday afternoon on the race. So there was re only really FP4 uh, that anyone got uh, any track time and it made tyre choice really difficult and it made tyre choice um, uh, it meant that a bunch of people gambled and for some people it didn't those gambles didn't pay off so well yeah for sure I think uh, Yamaha was uh, was top of that list we're looking at free practice looking at qualifying I think with the exception of Cal Crutchlow who put his hand on the front row Yamaha locked out uh, well three of the top four positions in qualifying they were pretty dominant in um, in free practice as well but um, that didn't quite translate to the race. I mean, um, yeah, we saw pretty early on that uh, they started to go back down through the field. What was the issue there, Div? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem was grip, really. Um, the Yamahas are really, really good with grip. Um, and they were pretty good uh, uh, on their own when they could run their own lines. Um, but with the increased uh, tire temperatures or with the increased tra track temperatures that may that sort of complicated the uh, amount of tire wear that they were getting and the amount of grip that there that, that there was um a couple of people sprung for the medium front and um especially Fabio Quartararo he really suffered with that because you know he hadn't spent any time at all on the uh, uh, on the medium front, and then the tire, you know, his tire pressure just ended up going up enormously, and he, and he lost all grip. But you also saw with Maverick Vinales, who got away at the start, um, that the Hondas, the Suzukis, could just cut completely underneath him. They just had more grip. Uh, they were uh, able to turn the bike a lot better uh, and use the use the circumstances, uh, uh, just use the, the the circuit a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most notable struggler from uh, all the Yamahas was obviously the championship leader, Fabio Quattararo, who started well, was sitting as high as second at one point, but uh, then just started dropping down the field at a really rapid rate. I think he ended up the day in 18th, no championship points for him and another disastrous weekend for uh, for fast Fabio and obviously Cormac I mean he complained quite a lot about his front tire pressure being uh, way too high during the race and that's a bit of a that's a bit of a lottery uh, it's quite difficult whenever you've had limited setup time during free practice yeah especially if it's cold on the first day and then the temperature in the middle day which is Saturday is different and then on Sunday is different again you know all these things I don't think they're as straightforward as everybody thinks. People just think because, you know, MotoGP, they know what tire pressure to have. A certain temperature will have this pressure and on this day will have this pressure, but it's not that easy. And each day is, is different and each riding style is different. You know, Fabio rides quite strange compared to other Yamaha riders and other, other riders in general, which you can see visibly when you're out on track. Um, I'm not definitely not a, like a riding coach expert, but his riding style is very different to other people like he doesn't hang off the bike as much as other riders um and i wonder if that contributed a little bit to um what happened to him on sunday perhaps not but perhaps yeah um you know i, I just i think from the outside looking in it's very easy to overestimate how easy it is 
I spoke to um, uh, I spoke to Peter Baum on Sunday night about this, and he said um, that he thought because they'd had no time on the medium front, um, it, it, exactly what Cormac said. Um, you have to take a, a bit of a guess. You know, you don't know exactly what the what uh, tire pressure to to use. So you um, you know th that's what practice is for. Practice is for figuring these things out. And when you get such an enormous amount of uh, of difference, then you, you, if going out with the medium front and no practice time means that you just have to sort of take a guess at it. Um, and they probably, you know, put a little bit too much pressure in, um, and the tire pressure went up much more than they expected. And he, he, he just couldn't get the bike turned. It makes a difference when you're in a group as well. You know, the heat from the bike in front will affect your tire temperature and tire pressure or temperature will directly affect pressure. Um, and as soon as he started to drop back, that problem probably just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And there's not a lot he can do in that situation. Like you, you're in a group, you, you you know, you can't go forward because you're struggling with the pressure or the temperature, but you can't go backwards. What do you do? I, you know, I feel a bit sorry for him in that situation because it's not his fault. You know, it's an unlucky, like David said, trying to figure out what, what pressure to have on certain days is not easy. And if they made a mistake, then he's the one that has to deal with it. And it, there's no one out there but him. So I'd feel a bit sorry for him, to be honest. It's not as easy. You know, it looks a bit silly. Oh, he's just going backwards because his tire pressure is too high. It sounds very basic, but... It's still a motorbike. You still have to put air in the tires. You know, it still has to. It's the same as club racing. It's the same as any category of racing. Um, and I'd say that the, in a group when he was behind other riders, it just got worse and worse and worse for him. Uh, it's not easy. Definitely not easy for him. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw, I mean, when it got bad, it got really bad. I think he was losing six, seven places per lap until he eventually fell all the way back to behind uh, Stefan Bradle. So another very difficult weekend. Uh, Cormac, obviously, I mean, you are standing trackside and you get to you get to watch these guys and maybe you're quite far away trackside from seeing intricate details of their body position but however whenever you're taking photographs and you're then editing them you can see things up close and you have noticed some interesting things about the way fabio rides the yamaha i, I feel well, i mean like i said earlier i'm not a, a riding expert or coach but from looking at my pictures a lot of the pictures that people other people will never see the way that fabio sits on the bike is very different to all the other riders like valentino has a very neutral riding style maverick has a very neutral riding style franco has quite a, a neutral style similar to rossi which I would imagine comes from training together. Um, but Fabio's style is very, he doesn't hang off the bike an awful lot. His, his backside is on the seat. Um, and that will definitely have an impact on how, um, maybe when he rides alone, it's perfect. But if he's in a group, it can definitely have an effect. Um, and the Yamaha seems like a very neutral bike. You know, it sounds the most gentle when you're on track. It looks the most gentle similar to the Suzuki, but I would say the Yamaha looks and sounds the most friendly. Um, but Fabio's style is very, very, very different, or you know, at least visibly. Obviously, we don't get to look at their data. Maybe it's the same in, in, in technical terms. But visibly, his style is very, uh, very different, especially when you compare it to non-Yamaha riders, like especially Mir, uh, who has a very, very neutral is the word I keep using, but it's a very neutral riding style. It's a very... A consistent riding style. I just think Fabio's is a very strange riding style, and I would imagine it's developed to be what it is. You know, probably through mistakes in junior categories where you know he has no riding coaches, and you get to MotoGP, and it's very difficult to find the, someone who's going to tell a MotoGP rider that they're wrong. 
especially if he's winning races. But maybe it's something that people overlook that, you know, Muddy's riders can still learn. Uh, maybe that's something, especially when you just look at the other three Yamaha riders, they all ride very similarly. Sure, Quattro is the one that's winning, but I think, especially when the conditions change, whether it's temperature or dry, wet, like in Le Mans, maybe that has an effect. Maybe it doesn't, but I, from the outside, that's what it looks like. So, do you think? Do you think that um, by not hanging off, it gives him sort of like fewer options to adapt when yes. conditions change? I would say so. It also means generally you would use more tire. Uh, you know, the idea of hanging off the bike would be that you 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 limit the weight that you're loading on the tire in specific areas, and and hanging off the bike means you generally need to use slightly less lean angle at critical points. Um, but it's interesting that once the, temp, once the the conditions seem to change dramatically, he is the one that seems to struggle more or at least slightly more than the other Yamaha riders. There's got to be a reason for that, um, like in Le Mans in the rain. And it's not that he can't ride, like for sure he can ride. Um, but maybe, maybe there's something in it. I, it's just something I notice all the time with pictures when I look from specific angles. His style is very, very different to the other Yamaha riders. And he seems to be the one that struggles the most when things aren't or when weather changes because like we said friday saturday sunday we're all very different here um and maybe that played a part mm. yeah you can certainly see that in fabio's results this year i mean when he's been good he's been absolutely devastating but his off days have been really quite pronounced and uh, i guess that is why one of the reasons why the championship is still so wide open div we've gone i don't know how many minutes into this show and we haven't even mentioned uh, the man that won the race or the man that finished second because they were in many ways the stars of sunday um while yamaha floundered in some respects suzuki built on what had been a solid weekend for both mir and rins um mir qualifying on the second row rins qualifying 10th and uh well i mean this weekend will be remembered for rinzi and what he did Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a start, he got an absolutely fantastic start. If you see him, uh, I think he had he was in the right position because he was on the outside, uh, on the far right side of the uh, of the track, which gives him the ideal line around the corner. But he got an absolutely rocket start, um, uh, and he entered. He, he basically entered um, turn one in about fifth position. Um, and then he quickly disposed of uh, Jack Miller after that. So it was uh, like that made such a huge difference. And it also makes a huge difference. The fact that that Suzuki, where it's strongest is it, it really can turn, um, almost, you know, on a, uh, on a dime, as they say, it, it needs no, it needs no help turning. It can turn absolutely anywhere. It can also hold any kind of a line. And you saw that, especially when he was overtaking the Yamahas um, through turn 17, through the last through the last corner. Um, he was just able to hold the inside line much, um, uh, much better while the Yamahas were having to sort of sweep out to the edge of the track, try to carry some speed onto the, um, uh, uh, onto the, onto the front straight to, to, to you know, convert their corner speed into, into drive. Whereas, yeah, I mean, Rins, both Rins and Mir were, were capable of, of picking their lines at will. But yeah, Rins, it was just, it was an absolutely outstanding ride by Rins. That was just the, the, faultless, really. Yeah, really good stuff from Rins. And we do know, and we've mentioned this many times before in the show, that uh, the Suzuki is probably the best bike on the grid for taking care of tyres. And that fact allowed 
both of their men, Rins and Mir, to run soft front and soft rear, which uh, I think only Vinales, of the leading guys, of the guys certainly in the top eight positions, uh, ran. So that that obviously you know helped Rins go like he did at the start of the race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he has the advantage of being able to get away quickly and also be able to just fling it into, especially the right-handers, uh, knowing that the grip will be there. Um, and uh, then the nature of the Suzuki, the, the the fact that it does look after its tyres so well, uh, means that he's still got plenty left them uh, at the end. And um uh, he ended up needing the extra tyre at the end because, he, you know, he very nearly got robbed. Yeah, he fairly nearly did. Uh, we'll come on to Alex Marquez in just a little bit, but um, I want to ask uh, Cormac something quickly. We I thought there was a good quote from Franco Morbidelli who said when he was passed by Rins and Mir relatively early in the race, he knew that uh, trouble was coming because normally the Suzukis make their appearance at the front you know, with maybe 10 laps or seven laps to go. But the fact that they were so strong so early really was uh, quite ominous uh, for the Yamahas there. But, I mean, looking at Rins' season as a whole, Cormac, he suffered a fractured dislocation of his right shoulder at round number one. He came back a week later at the Andalusian Grand Prix, and he's been riding pretty well, and his results have been quite impressive since then, with obvious ups and downs. However, I mean, how difficult is it? Can you just give some idea or some perspective of riding with an injury like that for more or less a full season? I would say probably it's harder mentally. I'd say on, on, once you physically get going most of the time, unless it's really, really serious. But when he came back, adrenaline will take over. But I think mentally to, to, to get around, you know, the idea of getting hurt again is really difficult, especially when your teammate's really, really quick. Like you, you just don't want to be beaten by a teammate. And I would say mentally for him, that's for me is more impressive that he's come back to where he is now from where he was um you know physically it's it's a physical problem to overcome you know you do this you, you know you do you follow the steps the doctors say and generally you'll get better but mentally there's no real prescription for it you have to work it out yourself uh that's very difficult and not something that's spoken about a lot just how difficult mentally it is to race under normal circumstances but then also being injured and you're riding a bike that you know is good. Your teammate is extremely quick. It's very impressive to come back from what he came or where he was at the start of the year to where he is now. And if he hadn't had that unfortunate start, where would he be now? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was just about to say. I mean, I, I worked this out. Uh, Rins crashed out of the lead in Austria in August after he had had that injury. And he crashed out of second place at Le Mans. Say he scored 45 points in those two races, he would be nine points ahead in the championship at the moment. So without that injury, you have to imagine Rins would be probably leading. Yeah, and I'd say some part of some part of his brain thinks about that. And, and even to overcome those kind of things, what ifs, is quite difficult. You know, you, you wake up in the morning, you think, Fuck, if I hadn't, if that hadn't happened, or I hadn't did, I've done that, maybe I would be here, or where Miri is now, maybe that could be me, or you know, he's been a Suzuki longer, maybe like it's he, he feels like it's his place uh but like i said mentally for me it's impressive that he's come back from where he was to where he is now and he seems like he's happy genuinely seemed like he was in a good place on sunday yeah absolutely yeah and of course the eighth different winner in 10 different motor gp races incredibly the eighth different winner in the last eight races as well that's only happened once in history before back in 2016 so we Look, are i might get a win <laughs> <laughs> at this rate <laughs> exactly um Yes, and David, just a quick word uh, about uh, about Joanne Mir because I think many thought that he would be the first non-Yamaha 
in the race, but it didn't quite work out for him. He still scored a, a good third place, becomes the first Suzuki to lead a championship in, what, 20 years since Kenny Roberts Jr. Um, but why was he not quite able to, to match his teammate? Yeah, um, he struggled with grip more than um, um, more than Alex Rins did. Um, also, possibly because he had to. Uh, he started from the second row, but he didn't get through the field as quickly as um, as Rins did. Rins was sort of straight to the front almost, whereas uh, Mira had to pick off um, uh, people. So he had to use his tyres just. A little bit more, but he just couldn't. He didn't seem to have the same sort of um, uh, the 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 same sort of grip as as uh, Alex Rins did, uh, and his tyres dropped off, especially at the end um, when uh, Alex Marcus got past. He, you know, he tried staying with him. He couldn't really stay with him, and he ended up um, uh, a, a little way behind. So, um, still very uh, very clearly safe, but it's. Interesting that um, Juan Mir keeps on finding a way to not win races because he's, I mean, at the moment, you'd still say he's the, the, the favourite for the championship just because he's so incredibly consistent. He's on the podium week in, week out, and all the rest are uh, sort of up and down. But he's looking more and more like a an Emilio Elzamora at the moment um, who won the 125 championship in 1999 without winning a race um, just by being so really good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mir, super consistent fifth podium of the year, but uh, as David said, yet to score his win. We'll go on a little bit later and talk about the, the championship permutations um, after, I think, uh, in some ways, the star of, of, of Aragon. Like, Dave, you and I both talked at length last week about Alex Marquez's superlative performance in the rain at Le Mans. I mean, it's one thing to ride as he did in the rain, but it's another to take Honda to within what two tenths of the victory here at Aragon, it was uh, it was a stunning performance, and I mean he had been impressive throughout the weekend, but for him to go from talking about top potential top eight, potential top six, to fighting for the race win, I mean this is a jump that I don't think any of us had anticipated. Yeah, I mean Honda people were saying, uh, you know, well. With a bit of luck, we could get a top eight here, um, and it worked out that he was he did a little bit better than a top eight. I think it, it helped coming off of a podium last week because that gives you the confidence, really the confidence that you understand what you're doing, that you understand uh, that it's that it's possible. Uh, especially also that was for him really the chance to prove his doubters wrong. Um, uh, he got a proper both him and Petrucci got a, a chance to have a proper go at um, uh, everyone in the uh, post-race press conference last week um, uh, he was very relaxed this is a track he loves like his brother um, he's he was really really good he also sort of said you know I didn't have any didn't really have anything to lose so I didn't have to worry about you know P2 okay I could just like push on and try and um, uh, try and win the thing. So he he had little to lose. Um, I have a, a question for Cormac because I was watching the onboard footage from Juan Mir's bike, which is absolutely great. Um, what's really, really interesting is that um, watching from the backward facing camera uh, on Mir's bike, they, they show the battle between Mir and uh, Alex Marquez. And Alex Marquez looks so like his brother on that bike. He was riding the bike in exactly the same sort of way, you know, hanging off in the same way with his elbow drops and his, um, uh, uh, and his head down. And it, it really looked that way. Is that what you see when you're standing trackside? 
Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Even from the first time he rode the well, the first time I we saw him properly ride the bike in um, Malaysia, um, I, I had trouble picking out which one was which. Like, genuinely struggled sometimes to know which one was which. The only thing they gave it away it was not the number; it was the helmet color. Um, and there's been certain times this year where I've thought, well, he really looks like Mark there. Um, but particularly in the second half of the race on Sunday, there's a few times I, I, I saw him and then looked back at pictures and I was like, that really, really looks like Mark. And then I thought maybe, like all people, you know, he's looked at the person who, who rides the thing the best and he's just thought, well, if it works for him, I'll just try that. And clearly it works, but he really looks like his brother. But he is, I, I would say for him, the most annoying thing is that he looks like his brother. <laughs> like he, he just wants to be him, I think. And, you know, he wants to be Alex and not Mark's brother. Uh, but he looked very, very similar. But maybe that's the way you need to ride the bike. You know, maybe that is the the, the key to unlock it, if you like. Um, but it was very, very impressive. Yeah, seriously impressive stuff from Alex. And he did uh, mention a few things that, that you might contribute to this recent upsurge in performance. Uh, he said a, a few weeks ago he started using Mark's settings a bit more and, and as you said, you know, try and ride a bit more like him. Uh, I think there's been a, a new Olin shock that uh, he's been using uh, or he raced on Sunday, uh, which uh, Matt Oxley, uh, our colleague, uh, wrote so well about um, yesterday. Um, but Cormac, you obviously are Honda's photographer and uh, you work a bit with Alex and you've been photographing sorry Brian you've been photographing him uh, all year long I mean what what kind of guy is he like and in terms of how he's progressed have you looking in from the outside it seems that he's been very um, humble um, there's been no sort of toys out of the pram moment inside the box and he's just got on with it diligently and, and basically kept his head down in the face of some really difficult moments. I mean, what have you seen? Yeah, I think the thing that strikes me most about him is that he's intelligent. I mean, he's very smart. He knows where to pick his battles, what to complain about when uh, and in what way. But I've never, ever seen him be... Uh, sure, you know, you get a bit angry or a bit moody, but that's normal. But never, uh, like he said, toys out of the pram. He's very problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. And I think this is just like come to a head at the moment that a combination of solving problems along the way, being more confident, as David said, like you, uh, a podium in Le Mans, you come here thinking, oh, I can do this. Like I'm, I'm, I actually can be in MotoGP. I can be at the front and maybe I can win. There's two races in a row where maybe if he had two more laps, he would have been a winner. That does a lot for your, for your head just to confirm to yourself that you you can be here. Um, but yeah, intelligence is probably the thing that comes across most, as I spending time with them, but watching closely and getting, and, and being privileged enough to see up close um, what goes on, but he is very intelligent. There's no question. Similar to his brother. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's clear. Definitely, when you uh, when you see his approach and, and when you hear him speak and, and, and sometimes uh, hear some of the technical comments that he makes. Um, in terms of obviously, Mark has not been present all season, but they're clearly in close contact a lot. Alex said even during the weekend they're in contact, right? And Mark's probably giving him some pointers and telling him how to do certain things. I think it's like everything, you know, if you if your sibling, older or younger, male or female, is, is good at something and you are trying to do that something, of course you're gonna ask them, what do you do? You know, should I try this? Is this a good idea? Is that a bad idea? Etc. And that's completely normal and 
smart. You know, you, you, it doesn't because they're brothers. They're they're closer, and they probably have more frequent contact than if they were just friends. But it's it's not really it's not really any different than if your friend is really good at something, you would ask. You know, you you text them or ring them or send them pictures or something, and be like, "What do you think of this?" And then you combine that with what you think, and then whatever your team and engineers say to you, and you say to them, and then you sort of paint a picture and go from there. Um, but sure, if you had access to mark markers why would you not use it doesn't matter who you are brother or not brother you'd be silly not to yeah that's very true indeed um absolutely and david just looking ahead to the terrawell grand prix aragon too i mean alex marquez's progression from uh first race to the second race when we have back-to-back weekends has been quite astonishing this year i think he was nearly 17 seconds faster in the second mizano race than he was at mizano one uh, we have to well we have to look at him as possibly a favorite for victory in this weekend coming up oh, definitely um it's i mean the, let's put it this way he's not going to be 17 seconds uh, faster than um uh, than he was this weekend because otherwise it, it i mean he would be out marketing his own brother um but yeah he's he's going to improve he's going to um make steps he's going to find a little bit more but then you also have to wonder um i mean as rookies ride through the season, they they make sort of big steps towards understanding the basics of the uh, uh, of riding a MotoGP bike, and then they start on the refining process, um, and their sort of progress starts leveling off. And um, how quickly that happens varies enormously from rider to rider. And I wonder whether Alex Marquez has sort of reached. Um, the leveling off period, uh, if you like, he's going to get better as a MotoGP rider, but it's going to be sort of smaller steps rather than bigger steps. Um, and this weekend is going to be different because the weather is going to be a lot more stable. It's going to be a lot more um, consistent. That'll mean that everyone will get a lot more time with the tires to understand the bike. They'll be able to ride and test things in the morning as well because uh, it's not going to be whatever it was, five, six, seven degrees in the morning it's going to be more 12 13 14 degrees um and in the afternoon the, the they will they'll get sort of two afternoons of decent practice to get set up and they've already got a setup base so um i think alex marcus is in for a much tougher race this weekend this could be the one race weekend where he doesn't progress but i mean you know after should we say in austria there's no way you would have gone to Austria, Austria too, and said, "All right, well, you know, um, Alex Marcus has done better. He's in with a chance of a win." But in uh, Aragon too, absolutely, hundred percent in with a chance for for a win. But then there's a fair few other, a number of other riders who are also in uh, in with a chance for a win. So yeah, there are no guarantees in 2020. But just four races to go, we have four riders covered by 15 points at the head of the championship just uh well very very little in it between Juan Mir and Fabio Quattararo uh yeah six points basically Maverick Vinell is 12 points back in third Andrea De Vizioso how I mean how the hell can this be but he's 15 points back of the championship lead with four points to go after what has been a decidedly average campaign and now Dave we've maybe touched on this once or twice before in uh, 2020 but I mean, you. I read your report from Sunday night, very fine work as always, and uh, you were positing that uh, one of the reasons why this championship is so open is possibly because two of the leading protagonists, Mir and Quartararo, 
don't really have that much experience of being put under this kind of pressure whenever the championship comes to an end. Well, no, I mean, none of it's been a long time since anyone has actually won a championship. Um, with Mark Marquez out and Valentina Rossi out with uh, with the coronavirus, which we'll talk about later on. Um, there's no one with really extensive experience of winning uh, uh, winning championships. There are two riders on the grid, or there were two riders on the grid at Aragon who had won more than uh, one more than one championship, um, and that was Alex Marquez and Joan Zarco. So uh, this managing a championship is so um, it's a very mentally intense experience and especially now i mean we're all tired from these three races back to back it uh, three races back to back is not sort of you know 50 percent harder than two races back to back it's more like sort of you know exponential where it's four times harder than um uh, than two races back to back um that's the way it is for me probably for you as well and it must be for the riders as well it's so um Keeping that sort of emotional intensity is really, really difficult. And you really notice with, um, um, Mir has been the best, sort of the, the, the most consistent, but you really notice with Fabio Quartararo. You also notice with Maverick Vinales, because I think Maverick Vinales, the last championship he won was in Moto3 in 2013, I think. Um, uh, uh, Andrea Dovicioso won a championship, but that was back, uh, that was a 125 championship back in 2004, 2005, no, 2004. So that was, you know, this is, it's all been such a long time since any of them actually had to clinch a championship. And although Dovi has got lots of experience fighting for a championship, he always ended up losing out to Mark Marquez. Um, so, yeah, I think I think this is putting a lot of pressure on riders, which they are um, not really used to dealing with. Um, and it's a different pressure as well, not just because of the intensity of the championship, but also because they don't have one rival to, con to, to concentrate on. We keep talking about this. You know, there are still four maybe five riders who maybe six riders who are uh, in with a chance of the championship who, who could still actually win the championship have a realistic chance at it so that is really really difficult i think and and, and confusing yeah confusing and do you think cormac i mean the fact that marquez is out this is the first time since he's joined model gp that he hasn't been present he hasn't been in a title fight do you think for someone like quattararo they're almost looking at this year as I have to win it this year. Otherwise, who knows when I'll next get that chance? Is that something that maybe even subconsciously plays on his mind? I'd say consciously plays on his mind. He'll ne he's never going to tell you when you ask him or me or anybody else. But of course, if you think about it, he's thought about it. You know, Mark is so good that you have to take any opportunity you can to win when he can't. And right now he can't. Um, but like David said, sometimes having one opponent is easier because you think I just need to finish fourth if he finishes fifth. But when you have 8,000 opponents that can win a world championship with four races left, then you have to just win. And that's difficult because you have to take more risks, but more risks yeah, with so many races close together has bigger consequences. It's a really difficult balance, but for sure, Quattro will be thinking, this is a chance. I, you know, I, 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 maybe this is his only chance. Who knows? You know, every year is so different. And this year is so different that maybe next year he goes to a factory Yamaha and he's not as quick as he is now. Maybe the pressure of a factory Yamaha slows him down, ironically. 
Um, but yeah, for sure. Like, wouldn't you? I would if if I was riding or and you you were your main person that you thought you had to beat wasn't there. For sure, you'd be trying to take anything you could just in case you don't get that chance again. Yeah, you certainly would. I mean, um, I get the impression that that Fabio came away from the double header in uh, at Reth in July with the thought that this is mine and it's all going to be rather straightforward because he was so good there. He was so dominant. And, um, well, the next best guy, Maverick Vinales in that case, has, you know, some pretty obvious flaws which his rivals can and should exploit. Um, but it's obviously not really gone to plan since then. And, and there have been races where you just feel quarter hours almost thought I should be higher up than here. And why is it not going as well as now? Yeah. And I think then when you start to think like that, you start to try too hard and then you make mistakes. And apart from his wins, he hasn't finished on the podium. So once you're off the podium, maybe subconsciously or consciously, you start to panic a bit and you start to push and make mistakes. And uh, it definitely will be on his mind. Um, he's not a crasher generally, which is good, but he does seem to have uh I think his, his weakness is that when he is not winning, it's difficult for him to rationalize and justify to himself why he's not winning. And so he tries to ride around things that maybe cause more problems. Um, and you can see it in his results. Uh, you know, 13th is, is quite low. And last week, of course, he had problems. That's, and that's, you know, but that, that happens. You still have to manage the problems. It's up to him when he's out there. His team can't help him. They can give him information, but it's up to him. Um, but yeah, I think you're right, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a, a real up and down campaign for for quite a while. Um, Mir, David, I mean, you were you mentioned earlier that he doesn't quite seem to have the capacity to to win. He's he's presented with a couple of decent opportunities, or he has been presented with a couple of decent opportunities so far this year. Obviously, he got seriously unlucky in Styria, but um, but the longer this goes on, the kind of more this will be playing on his mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, he said on Sunday, like you know, he's not thinking about the championship until the last couple of uh, until the couple of uh, last couple of rounds. Uh, for now, all he's trying to do is win races. Um, but yeah, I definitely think the the pressure is the, the pressure is really starting to mount because we do have four races left. Um, uh, four races in five weeks. Um, two of them. In Valencia, which they know, and then the last one in Portimao, which is going to be a complete wild card because they might have ridden around there, but they've got absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Um, these sort of things are really going to play uh, on all of their minds. And again, like Fabio Quartararo is 21, uh, Juan Mir, I think, is 23. Three off the top of my head. Um, they're all very young. They don't have experience winning championships. Um, so yeah, handling that, that kind of pressure is, is just really difficult. And uh, Juan Mir really needs to put a, he needs to put the kind of race together which he had in, uh, Styria, uh, before the red flag came out and, uh, and, um, uh, and stop the race and basically robbed him of a win. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not that I don't think he could win. I think he's absolutely capable of winning. But winning is really difficult, especially with so many teams, so many riders, so many bikes which are so competitive. Because we've had 
uh, five different. We've had four different bike win, uh, bikes win the uh, uh, win races, and five different bikes on the ch- on the uh, on the podium. So yeah, it's just there are so many. It's all so incredibly close because you you had a great stat about that, um, uh, uh, Neil, on on Sunday night about how close it all was, and I think that makes it so difficult to. Um, it makes it difficult to try and you know plan a race to try and uh, uh, try and put together a, a consistent season when anything can happen and the tiny little differences make uh, have such a huge effect on the results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you go back through history, I think there's only been three occasions when a rider has won as few races in the Premier class on their way to the championship as two. Um, I think one of those was in a year when there was only six races. Another was in a year when there was only eight races. And then we had Nicky Hayden in 2006, and that was a bit of a freak year in some respects. Um, and we could basically get to Portimao, Mir is Cron champion, and he wouldn't have won a Grand Prix since the end of 2017. I mean, how <laughs> crazy is that? Um, but, you know, it's 2020, so uh, just take it with a pinch of salt. Um, if I had to put you on the spot, Cormac, we've got, let's say, I mean, Takenakagami's within reach, but I think the champion has to come from the top four currently, either Mir, Quadraro, Vinales, Vizioso. If I had to put you on the spot and ask you for some of those lovely Irish Euros that are in your pocket, I mean, who would you be putting your money on? Mir. No no question, Mir. I think uh, mentally when you, um, when you win a race, mentally it spurs you on. You become a slightly stronger. Uh, and he hasn't won a race yet, and he's this strong. I think everybody should be afraid that when he does win a race, that's it. He's gone. Um, for him to be leading the championship and not have won, for me, that's like a, a red flag if you were racing against him. Because as soon as you win one, something changes in your brain where you're like, well, I can do this. I can win. I can clean up here. I'm better than this lot. Um, and he hasn't. He doesn't have that yet. He's still wondering, can he win? It'd be kind of ironic if he wins the championship without winning. I don't know what way that plays in your brain. But... For sure. When he wins a race, for me, when he wins a race, I think he'll win more than one. Now he's running out of races. He's only got four left. But I still think he's going to win a race before the end of the year. I think he will win the championship if I had to give you one of my Euro. Okay, right. Nice. That's very generous of you. Uh, David, what about you if I had to put you on the spot and ask you for some of those lovely Dutch guilders that uh, that populate your pocket? They, um, I traded my Dutch guilders in a very long time. They're no longer legal currency, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, uh, I think that Cormac is absolutely right. You'd have to, you would have to bet on Juan Mir just because he's been so consistent. Um, you know, he's got the most podiums and he's been the closest to, to, to the, to the podium. Um, even at Le Mans where he, where he had a, had a bit of a shocker, uh, not entirely through his own fault. Uh, he still ended up losing just a couple of points to Fabio Quartararo. So, yeah, it's uh, he is the most consistent. And I think it is lo- like um, like Cormac says, when you win a race, something changes. You, there's a confidence boost you get, which makes all the difference. And the difference between him and Alex Rins, I mean, Alex Rins has had uh, sort of several wins and you can really see it with him as well. He, he is absolutely um, full of confidence. But um, he's also extremely flaky. He's, he's just extremely inconsistent. He is outstanding one week and nowhere the next. Um, not quite on the Maverick Vinales scale, 
but still quite um, it, it just not capable of putting together the kind of consistent challenge which Mir is, uh, has done. And if you go back to Juan Mir's one two, um, sorry, one two five, three cha- uh, championship, he dominated that championship but just by sheer consistency he bludgeoned the rest of the co- the opposition into um into submission um so yeah i i think if he does win a race then then it's pretty much over uh, but even if he doesn't win a race i still think he's going to be the most uh, he's still going to be the favorite because he will be uh second third fourth um in every single race until the end because uh, the Suzuki works everywhere as well. The, 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 the Suzuki works in most conditions and reasonably well. Um, so, uh, and at most tracks. So I think it's, it, it, he has the right tool to finish the job as well. Um, so yeah, you'd have, you'd have to put that because, I mean, you can easily see Fabio Quartararo winning another race, Maverick Vinales winning another race, uh, Andrea Dovizioso winning a, winning a race, uh, a bunch of others maybe winning a races. Um, but you can also see them finishing eighth, ninth, twelfth, fifteenth. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And I think one of the other things for me that stands out about Rins is compared to Fabio Quadraro, he's just cool. He's got that kind of assassin's uh, mindset. You saw that in his, his title year of Moto3. He was just so cool in every last lap battle. There was almost a, an expectancy when his attack was going to come, and it always did come. Um, and we haven't really seen him get flustered this year, even when he's had disappointing results he still handled himself quite coolly like Quartararo is always cool when he speaks to us he's always very composed when he speaks to the press at the end of the day but in the heat of the moment we have seen him have no well I wouldn't say meltdowns but you know extremely emotional moments like um even after he won in Barcelona he was crying in Park Ferme uh when he had his podium taken away from him at the second race at Misano he went up and had a, a pretty impressive little tanty at the race direction offices one that really had to be seen to to be believed and I think when the when the pressure gets really really intense that might start working against him just ever so slightly so uh yeah I think yeah Mir um yeah, I think Mir for me as well, I must say, uh, going into the final four races. Um, we're going to look really good when Mir doesn't win this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the end of the day, I was I was working this out though, and you know, it sounds like we're, we're picking holes in, in both of them. They're, they're two exceptional riders in my point of view, and they're both at the very start of their MotoGP careers. I mean, if Quadraro does win the championship this year, he will have become the second youngest ever MotoGP championship winner, uh, even younger than Freddie Spencer. So, you know, we're still talking about a guy in his relative infancy. And Mir is still in just his fifth year in Grand Prix racing. So, I mean, most riders or most exceptional riders are doing their first year of MotoGP at where he's at right now. So, in relative terms, you know, he's still pretty inexperienced as well. The fact that they're ahead of guys like Vinales and Davizioso is, well, it's a credit to them. And it shows you just how how good and how talented they are. Uh, So, without much further ado... David, I mean, there was one massive talking point on Thursday uh, before the Aragon GP about the absence of a certain rider, a certain Italian rider, a certain 41-year-old Italian rider. Um, He is, well, the highest profile MotoGP figure to contract COVID-19. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it certainly puts a low bed an awful lot of conspiracy theories about Dorna bending the rules for Valentino Rossi because he tested positive and he wasn't allowed to travel. It was as simple as that. Um, the <clears throat> first time that he missed a race uh, since breaking his leg in Mugello, and this was the first time that both uh, Mark Marcus and Valentino Rossi um, had missed a championship or uh, missed, a, uh, missed a race They'd both missed a MotoGP race uh, since um, Marquez actually entered entered the championship as well. So, uh, and I think also the first time that we hadn't had a reigning or a a, a reigning or former MotoGP champion on the grid for twenty one years. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, there you go. That was that's a long t- that's a long time. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, uh, I, it was handled quite well, I thought. Um, uh, Rossi woke up feeling a bit sort of shonky on, um, I think, the Thursday morning. Um, got tested. Um, the quick test came back uh, negative, but they're not allowed to travel until uh, they have the uh, full results uh, test test back. Or the, the the full results came back positive, so that meant he was stuck quarantined in um, uh, in Italy and he's going to be missing both uh, rounds uh, last week's and next week's as well because Yamaha have decided not to replace him which they don't have to because they can, they have to replace him within 10 days um, and it doesn't make any sense to actually uh, replace him anyway um, they've just been using up uh, engine miles and, and putting more stress uh, and strain on the, on the team uh, and whoever comes in is not going to be doing particularly well because there's no really there's no one really sort of around that you would think oh well he's going to come in and and just tear up the whole uh, championship excuse so, um, me former I, I i'd i'd have a, i'd give it a go <laughs> i mean i mean also it's like the year of test riders you got bradley you got stefan you know maybe Jorge could have just sort of yeah i mean comic in your opinion is it is it sort of crazy not to put lorenzo in there no i think it makes sense not to to be honest i think it would be entertaining in two ways to watch him ride. You know, it's very difficult to ride when you haven't ridden for so long. And also it's, you know, probably unfair on him, I think. Even if he'd want to, I think it's unfair on him to put him there. It's not the place to come back after such a long time of not riding a bike in a, in a Grand Prix weekend. That's quite a high, stressful environment. Um, also, why would you? You know, his most of Valentino's side is Australian or Kiwi. They've been away from home for a long time. They get a little bit more free time that they weren't planning on having. Like David said about engine usage, why use them? Why risk something? Um, and just wait for Valencia. Yeah, and then there's the then there's a small matter of Lorenzo being what three point three seconds off the fastest pace at the recent Portimao test. Um, he hasn't exactly been ripping it up whenever he has been uh, present in Yamaha's test team this year in those fleeting appearances. Uh, David, obviously the, the Rossi news was was a bit of a contrast in some respects to what we saw with uh, Moto3 Championship Challenger Tony Arbolino because he was also absent despite, what, three negative coronavirus tests? 
Uh, yeah, but I, I think he had been um, uh, on a plane with someone who had tested positive. And the trouble is, the basically, the uh, people are subject to the rules of their local governments. So to an extent, you're also a victim of uh, just how strict or not strict the rules are in the country where you happen to live. And I think in Italy, uh, the rules say you have to quarantine if you were uh, if you were present or you know in contact with someone who tested positive so um yeah that was for Arbelino, that was it's just really really bad luck i think so um uh yeah but there's you know those are the rules it's there's not a lot you can do about it they've chosen a particular protocol and they have to follow it well there is i suppose a question of why you would uh take an unnecessary flight during back-to-back -back races when you're fighting for a championship surely somebody somewhere would have been like well maybe we shouldn't do this you know how difficult is it to find a hotel that's not super expensive if cost is your issue for the sake of a championship i mean you know why why fly home to risk that it's, it's two flights that you can risk the the only the only thing is this is training um i mean you know maybe you want to train because i think training is going to be important in between and also like yes you are you're fighting for a championship and so you want to feel as comfortable as possible yeah i suppose but 2020 is one of those years where maybe things are a little bit different you know I, I don't know maybe maybe not i mean you know but i do think taking unnecessary flights while you're fighting for a championship is definitely a risk that couldn't be avoided that can be could be avoided Yes, absolutely, and it was interesting to hear some uh, some MotoGP riders um, talking about Arbolino and how uh, his situation will influence their behaviour from now on. Basically, no flights. I think Pekka Banyai decided to stay in Spain between races when he had initially planned to go home between Aragon 1 and Aragon 2. Um, and I think Alex Rins was another one. I'm sure um, guys like Rins... Um, and Joanne Mir, they're fortunate to live in Andorra, so they can basically drive back and forth to home between um, the Valencia and the Aragon races, maybe even Portimao as well. David, moving on, um, we obviously have some some pretty exciting news regarding uh, the Model 2 rider market. Um, and I say exciting because we've heard Cameron Bobier's name mentioned a lot in the last couple of years. I think it was in a, a MotoGP press conference for Laguna Seca back in 2012, 13. Ben Spees was asked one time about um, the local or the national scene in America and which riders stood out to him and made an impression. He expected to come up and fight on the World Championship stage at some point. And he mentioned Bobier. We haven't really, well, we've seen Bobier clean up in the in the states in the Moto America Superbike Championship for well five times that he's won that series now um, and he's going to be moving across to replace Joe Roberts um, in the American racing team um, what are your thoughts on that uh, well I think my first thoughts is surprised that he's going to Moto 2 or not World Superbikes because you would have thought that it would have made more sense for him to go to World Superbikes it's going to be interesting it's clear that he's an exceptionally talented rider the question is how would he adapt to a grand prix bike which moto 2 bikes are the the chassis are much stiffer it's a very different experience and also the tires i mean like it, it's going to be really important for him to get his head around the tires as quickly as possible uh he'll have a lot of circuits to learn as well although no, not so many if i remember correctly bobier um 
uh, Road 125s and uh, I think also Red Bull Rookies, but I'm not quite sure about the Red Bull Rookies, but he has experience on Grand Prix tracks. Um, um, but it's been, it was a long time uh, ago that he was actually riding on Grand Prix tracks. Uh, so he'll have to re reacquaint himself. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the, the American races team is there to promote American uh, uh, talent. So it makes sense, I suppose, that they would get Cameron Bobier over. But it would be, I think it would make more sense to have a young rider over because uh, Bobier is what, 29, 30, 31? I think he's quite, he's not the youngest any longer. 27. So, oh, 27. All oh, right. He's younger than I, he's younger than I thought. But then again, you know, he's not 21. Really, the American riders need to be coming over, you know, in their early 20s rather than their late 20s. But um, uh, he's still young enough to to learn to adapt, to make a chance, uh, to make an opportunity, you know, make a um, have a stab at trying to succeed in Moto2 and maybe move up to MotoGP. Um, and it will be good to see, it will be a good level of comparing the level of Moto America to, you know, Moto2 uh, to see whether it's going to be a, a a good talent pool for the future or not. Cormac, uh, just looking at the, the sort of the, the facts, I mean, coming from superbikes in America to the sneak pit that is Moto2, I mean, it's a big, big challenge, right? It's a massive jump. I'd say that's one of the, probably one of those things is you go out in the first session and you think, oh, shit, these guys are really quick. Like, you, you know, you, I think coming from any national championship to a world championship is difficult but coming from america where it culturally is quite different to europe uh really the first time he, go, he go, goes out in not necessarily a test but at grand prix weekend and you're surrounded by people who are really really quick like it's easy to forget how fast motor two riders are um like i don't know some tracks lap times are not a million miles away from motor gp these guys are really really quick um I think it's quite a difficult thing to come from America to here at the moment, especially like David said, coming from Superbike, which is a road chassis, to a Moto2 bike, which is not a road chassis, is a massive jump. Uh, good luck to him. I mean, I hope he does well. For sure, that's difficult. Definitely. Uh, I think uh, Cormac makes a good point there about um, uh, the, the depth of the field, about how competitive it is, because the, the, the one thing that riders who've come across from national championships have said is that... Um, it's like a culture shock coming from somewhere where there were maybe sort of five riders you had to keep an eye on to there being, you know, 20, 25 riders that you have to keep an eye on because all of these riders are all within sort of, you know, what the, well, you would know better than me, Neil, but, you know, uh, maybe a second, second and a half, two seconds covers almost the entire field. Um, and so if you are missing just a couple of tenths, then all of a sudden you find yourself starting 21st and right in the middle of that melee. And that becomes a very messy, very scary, very difficult, uh, uh, a very difficult thing. And a very something you're completely, you, you've forgotten what it's like to be racing like that. When you've dominated a, a, a championship for a long time, you're used to always being at the front, starting at the front and racing at the front. It's a very different kind of race when you start in the lead and finish in the lead than when you start in P20 and finish P14. They're very uh, different types of racing and different type of race craft as well. You know, racing, when you're racing the lead, you race yourself and you're bored. When you race from you start in P20, P18, P25, you race everybody around you. They all want to kill you. And the guys in P25 are racing as hard as the guys in P5. Maybe that's not the same in America where the, the the level drops off, like David said, after maybe the top five, six, seven, the level drop is quite big. Whereas in Moto2, the level drop is not big. You know, the guy in P20 is 
very very fast uh, yeah it's a, it's a difficult difficult jump yeah and also like I, I remember talking to kenny noise about that and he one of the things he said is like around p15 the competition is so incredibly fierce because you know lots of riders have um stuff in their contracts about championship points like you, you getting a championship point scoring points in the championship means uh it pretty much guarantees you a ride for next year or at least gives you a much much better chance of a ride next year um and it's important for the for, for the teams as well so yeah it it really it becomes incredibly cutthroat in that mid-pack section and there's stuff going on there because also the other thing is you know race direction are very much focused on the front of the race not quite as paying quite as much attention as as the mid-pack because it's a lot more difficult when there's sort of 15 riders all together so um, yeah it all gets quite vicious in there that's something that you see on track when you're taking pictures you see the whole race you see all the positions you know you see like i said p15 and p25 they're racing just as hard as p3 4 or 5 but it's just not on tv if anything maybe they're racing harder than because they they have not more to lose or more to gain but more to lose uh but like david said by not finishing p15 instead of finishing p16 um but you definitely notice when you're out on track that even the guys in the last group are racing extremely hard uh it's yeah i, would, I don't envy any of them yeah, exactly. And I guess the precedent in terms of riders coming from America uh, to Model 2 is uh, Josh Heron back in, what, 2014. I don't think he lasted the full season when he came as a, as a reigning Moto America Superbike champ. But I think Bobier certainly has more uh, more of a stacked CV uh, than Heron did when he came across. But um, it'll be, certainly be interesting to see how he gets on. Um, looking forward to seeing uh, looking forward to seeing that. Uh, the final news item that we're going to cover this week is uh, the case of Andrea Iannone. Now, it seemed that uh, we would have a definitive decision on Iannone by now. We would know what Aprilia would do as a consequence of that decision. And uh, we might have a better idea of what one of the final pieces of the grid in, will look like in 2021. Uh, however, David, there have been further delays uh, that's right the uh, cast the court uh, uh, court of arbitration for sport who um basically are the uh, highest possible court for all sporting disputes um they announced that their decision wouldn't come until mid-november uh, now mid-november is basically sort of the second race at valencia uh, or uh, either the either valencia 2 or portimao um, so the chances of us actually seeing Ian Oni on a bike again before the end of the season, I would say, are very slim. Uh, even if he's, um, uh, even if he is uh, cleared, even if his appeal is granted and he's allowed, uh, his um, uh, his suspension is rescinded. Um, however. The problem is he also faces WADA, and WADA are very, very aggressive about chasing any violations of the of the doping regulations. Uh, and unfortunately, even though um, Ian only claims it was a, a an accidental ingestion, you know, he accidentally uh, uh, ended up with this stuff in his bloodstream. Uh, WADA are very clear the rules the rules don't care about that. The rules say very clearly um, you are responsible for everything that goes into your body. Uh, and um, the fact that it's accidental has got nothing to do with it. There's, there's some very, um, it is quite exceptional, uh, or it is quite exceptional to be cleared um, of accidental ingestion. Now, 
Aprilia are standing behind their man. Uh, they're sticking with Iannone. Um, Massimo Rivola were talking to um, uh, Simon Crafar on the MotoGP feed. Was very clear. Uh, you know, he looked at the data. He saw saw all the evidence, and he, and he felt that um, Iannone's case was much stronger than the case of the Wada, of, of Wada or the or the FIM. So. Um, We'll see what happens, but um, it basically puts that whole Aprilia decision. It push, you know, kicks the can down the road. Um, we don't know what Iannone is going to do. We don't know what Aprilia are going to do. We have to wait for their decision uh, to hear whether um, Aprilia are going to keep Iannone or they're going to sign Cal Crutchlow. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's it's a, uh, it, it's just a delay. Yeah, yeah, just a delay. And I think in Aprilia, that was uh, the one thing that they did not want or they do not need. Um, Bradley Smith was talking on Thursday about how this just, uh, well, this is really playing on the, the the morale of the team and basically not having a clear idea going forward basically holds the whole thing up, uh, which is not ideal at this level for sure. Okay, quick. so that is it for the news items for this weekend. We're just going to move on finally to the winners and losers section of the show. Uh, winners first. Uh, David, you are a regular on this show. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, so Cormac can think a little bit about his winner from the Aragon GP, but who was your winner? It's hard to choose between Alex Marquez and Alex Rins, um, but I think I'm going to go for Alex Marquez because his podium in Le Mans was wet. That's an excuse because there's lots of different uh, factors play into that, but th this here was, you know, done in the dry. No one crashed out and handed in positions. Uh, he deserved this. He earned this. He earned this from start to finish. He started, I think, 11th on the grid, um, uh, fought his way through, rode absolutely superbly um, and really silenced his critics. There is no one saying he's only there because he's the brother, of, you know, he, he's Mark's brother. Um, there was a... Uh, well, yeah, kudos to Mark Marquez uh, for his post on social media um, uh, bragging about how he's the brother of Alex Marquez, um, which I thought was quite entertaining. Um, but yeah, the, I think this was the race where Alex Marquez established his uh, bona fides. He established himself as a genuine MotoGP rider, someone who deserves to be there. And, and honestly, I'm really looking forward to seeing him next year in the LCR Honda team on a, uh, you know, on a full factory bike with good people around him without the pressure, give him a chance to develop. Um, I think he's going to be really quite, um, uh, it's going to be quite impressive. Absolutely. Mr. GP. Yeah, I'm going for a winner. You are going for a winner. Mir. I think he's leading the championship. That is the aim of the game. He wasn't leading the championship, and now he is. So I think, yeah, he'd be my winner. <laughs> that's the, the end goal is to win a championship. But if you leave a race leading the world championship, I'd say that's pretty good going. I think that's quite difficult to disagree with. Absolutely. Uh, I think I will push the boat out a little bit and look beyond MotoGP, go towards Moto2. Um, and I might go with joint winners. Um, I might go with a uh, joint winner of Sam Lowe's and Ene Bastianini because uh, those two guys have suddenly hoisted themselves to the top of that championship. It was a bit of a, a bit of a disaster for their two championship rivals. Um, and Lowe's won, which puts him second overall. I think three points back of Bastianini. And Bastianini, after a couple of dodgy performances, uh, lifted himself up. 
to finish second after qualifying outside the top 10. So, uh, you know, really good to see him back on form. And I have been impressed with him generally whenever conditions have been normal. Even on his bad days, he has been quite consistent. There's been no real, well, I guess with the exception of Austria, I think... Uh, I think there's been no real mad fluctuation in Bastianini's results. He's been pretty consistently there. But as I see Cormac GP's eyes glazing over, I'm going to stop talking about Moto2 and I'm going to switch to the losers of the weekend. Cormac, your big loser of the Aragon GP. I'd say loser's Bezeki. Uh It was a big opportunity for his championship and to crash from the lead in those circumstances is pretty difficult to take. Mentally, that's quite hard. I would say uh, it was unfortunate. I, you know, I quite like him. I kind of want him to do well. Um, but yeah, I'd say he was probably the biggest loser for me. Yeah, Moto Two. Uh, well, he was going to be the championship leader before that crash. Two laps from the end. Pretty, pretty hard to take that. Felt a bit sorry for him. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, not nice to see. Pizzeki looking a bit downbeat, downtrodden in the uh, Sky VR Forty Six garage afterwards. Mister Remond. Um, I'm actually tempted to say Luca Marini, but I uh, won't. Um, I think it has to be Fabio Quartararo just because he looked so strong all weekend. He was so fast. Um, uh, the, the, the pole he took was just outstanding, especially given the fact that he was so badly beaten up from the crash on the, um, uh, on Saturday morning. Um, but, uh, you know, a minor mills calculation, the weather is a little bit different on Sunday and he ends up, uh, not even what, not even scoring any points. So it's just, um, it's not, it's not ideal, shall we say? It's not ideal. Um, like to his credit, he stayed out. He kept racing. He could have pulled in, and it would have made uh, no difference to his result. But he just, you know, he just kept on going. Uh, but to be finishing behind Stefan Bradl is not where the uh, where anyone with a with championship aspirations is supposed to finish. Uh, although um, him and Juan Mir and uh, someone else um, uh, and Maverick Vinales all finished behind um, Stefan Bradl in Lamar, of course. But that was wet. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go in a similar direction to Cormac, but expand it out and just say the VR46 Academy as a whole, because it was a wretched, wretched weekend for their riders, basically from the top all the way to the bottom. I mean, Valentino Rossi was absent through coronavirus. You had Vietti at the other end of the scale, the age scale, uh, finishing outside the top seven at a crucial point in the Moto3 Championship after his strong performance in Le Mans. You had both Sky Race and VR46 riders crashing out of the Moto2 race. Luca Marini, the title leader, falling early into the race. And, and as Cormac mentioned, Marco Bezzecchi later on, um, which was damaging to both their championships. And then the MotoGP, I mean, uh, Peko Bagnai, I think, had his worst weekend of the year, was never really in the fight, crashed out in lap three. And Morbidelli had aspirations of winning, yet only managed, I say only, but only managed sixth place, which was quite disappointing if you considered his speed for the rest of the rest of the weekend. So it was definitely one of those one of those occasions when just it seemed to the, the whole gang seemed to be let down and uh, you know a few long faces in uh, in those garages. I think it's time to wrap up the show because that's pretty much it for the Aragon GP. Uh, nice to know that we can uh, put our feet up for a nice couple of days um, before the next. Oh no, wait, uh, yeah. That's not going to yeah, happen. That's not going to happen. Yes, exactly. Back at it again uh, pretty soon. Um, but thank you, as always, dear listener, for tuning in to the Paddock Pass podcast. We greatly uh, appreciate um, 
your your attendance, your your ears, and your listening abilities, uh, because that really means a lot to us. It's a good time to remind us, or to remind you, sorry, that uh, we've got social media channels: Twitter, Twitter, Twitter at Pod. We've got Facebook.com forward slash Paddock Podcast. Uh, we also have a Patreon page where we have some interesting and exclusive content to a Patreon subscriber. You can get one of those subscriptions for as little as $3 a month. And, uh, you know, if you do like the show and you're inclined to spread the word, uh, please do leave a review on uh, one of those Apple podcast uh, app things that uh, the kids are so mad about these days because it really helps other people find this lovely little show. Um, so, uh, yeah, do all those things and uh, you'll get a golden star from one of us uh, on your uh, homework. Homework, exactly. Yeah, there you go on your report cards. You get gold stars in school from being a good boy. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while since you've been one of those, Cormac. Um, okay, and Cormac, I would just like to say thanks very much for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, tell our dear listeners where they can access your work. CormacGB.com. Uh, Instagram at CormacGP, Twitter at CormacGP, and Facebook.com forward slash CormacGP. Absolutely. I think David Emmett's MotoMatters.com also runs a little section where he has some of CormacGP's picks. And, and very fine pictures they are too. Yes, there's a. Uh, um, uh, I am lucky that um, Cormac sends me a bunch of photos after every race, and uh, I put up a story with pictures and. In my Sunday roundup, I s- sprinkle um, some of his finer, f- finer and more apposite pictures uh, inside of that. So, um, yes, always, uh, always enjoy them. Uh, okay, so uh, thank you very much, dear listener. As always, uh, with this being 2020, it is always race week, um, and therefore we will be back next week with another show from the Teruel Grand Prix. And uh, well, we'll talk to you then. Until then. See ya. Bye. We cool, dude.